Bradford. They are the children of Elder Brad Colley and Nellie Colley. And uh, Elder Brad Colley is the director for church planting, church growth, and health ministries for the Carolina Conference. Weren't they just beautiful? Lift up your glow tracks, would you? How appropriate tonight, along with what Pastor Ty Gibson's been sharing with us, war in heaven, for people to understand the great conflict that is taking place and how it's all going to end. Lift these up as we have a word of prayer over these seeds. Father in heaven, you see in our hands a seed of truth. I ask that you will bless this seed of truth wherever it may go, whatever heart it may touch. May that heart be reached for heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you feel pretty small yesterday? When Elder Ty, Pastor Ty Gibson showed you planet Earth in comparison to the vast expanse of the universe. And yet, didn't that passage of Scripture mean more to you when he showed you all of that last night? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, while I was sitting there and I was listening to his message last night, I, I told him this after the message was over with, I felt like singing, this is my father's world. I know you're going to be blessed by his message again tonight. And once again, let's open our hearts. Come on up, Pastor Ty. And as we have this prayer of blessing, remember, let's pray for ourselves as we sing, Spirit of the Living God. O oh God, our Father in heaven, tonight I ask your blessing upon Pastor Ty Gibson that you will anoint his words, that they will touch our hearts and move us into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. This is our prayer for him as he delivers your message. And we pray that your spirit will fill our hearts through this prayer. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody else. All right, you are here. Somebody, somebody said, why, are you, why do you look at your phone? Why do you take it up there with you? Why the phone? Can't you just leave your phone? Well, there's a timer. I'm timing the message. Calm down. 
I'm timing it every night. So I make sure that I preach exactly as long as I intend to. So I'm going to push this button. Here we go. Here we go. Well, I want you this evening to use your imagination for a minute. I want you to imagine a scenario that has just unfolded for you. First of all, imagine that you and I have never met. We don't know each other. You don't know me. I don't know you. But you've been gone for a while, a few hours, and you come home and you open your door, you walk in through the entryway, make your way in through the kitchen over to the living room, and you see me sitting on your sofa eating a sandwich (laughs) made from your sandwich material that apparently I have taken out of your refrigerator. How do you feel? Well, you feel violated. Who are you? Why are you in here? How dare you? Is that my last avocado on that sandwich? I was going to be making guacamole tonight with that. How dare? What are you doing? And as you, are those crumbs on my sofa? As you feel violated because of the presence of this strange individual sitting on your sofa, eating your sandwich material, suddenly, out of nowhere, just as I'm nervously scraping the avocado off the bread to give it back to you, your husband emerges from the back room And he says, oh, baby, this is my new friend, Ty. We just met, and I invited him over for a sandwich. Did anything just change? Well, the whole situation is different now, isn't it? Well, you lighten up immediately. You calm down. You tell me your name. We become friends. You make a sandwich. And we sit and we enjoy one another's company. Because now something has happened. I've been invited in to your home. Now, we all know this intuitively. Nobody has to explain this to us. This is is the way things are. There are natural rules that govern the domains of free moral agents. The fact of the matter is, that your home constitutes something very specific. You and I don't think about this a whole lot, but we just know it's true, and we operate as though it's true. The fact is that your home constitutes a domain. Sometimes we call it a domicile. Your home is a domain. It's a territory. It's a realm. It's a jurisdiction. Watch this over which you have authority to grant or to bar access. Isn't that true? That's what your home is. It is a territory that you hold. And because it is your territory, it is your realm, it is your jurisdiction, it is within your authority, within your power to grant or to deny access. We all operate like this in this world in which we live. And essentially, what we're understanding 
is that there is an inherent logic to love. Love of necessity grants freedom, and freedom of necessity gives agency. I exercise authority over some plot of ground in the world. I exercise authority over some piece of property, not just literal property, not just literally my home, my apartment, my flat, but I exercise authority over what has access to my mind. I have authority over this piece of terra firma, this, this flesh, this brain, this mind. I have authority over my automobile, and you don't have authority over it. It would be very odd for you to just get in my car and drive off with it. It's mine. You can borrow it. I can give you permission to utilize it. You will be bringing it back because it's mine, and I have authority over it. There's a logic to love on the cosmic scale as well. God is love, so there's something that logically follows. There's something that that logically emerges from that premise. God is love, therefore there are specific lines God will not cross. It's just as natural as the intuitive, natural rules that we understand are operable regarding our individual realms, our individual domiciles. God is a God of love, and because God is a God of love, there, there are specific lines he simply will not cross. There are things that God will not do that are not commensurate with love, that are not consistent with his character. There are things that God will not do simply and profoundly because God is love. Now, we're going to discover the line or lines that God will not cross this evening. But there is a corollary to the fact that God is love, and therefore there are lines that God will not cross. The flip side of that coin is that you are a free moral agent, so you have specific authority that you are free to exercise or not. It's there, you have it, by virtue of your identity as a human being, as a free moral agent. There are things that you can say yes or no to, and the external forces must comply. Now, sometimes you find yourself encroached upon by the external forces, and that we regard in human society to be criminal action. You driving off with my car, for example. But we intuitively, naturally know that we do have jurisdiction. We do have authority, don't we? We can say yes, and we can say no. So I'm going to suggest to you this evening that something profoundly beautiful and extremely powerful is going on within the biblical narrative. And it's something like this, that as loyal subjects of the kingdom of Christ, you possess delegated authority to get some things done in the world. In other words, God 
in the person of Christ has staked a claim in this world. And because he has staked a claim in this world, which is a world, a planet in rebellion, because he has staked a claim in this world, he is looking for free moral agents that will be his proxy in the world, that will carry out his will within this world. And so Jesus goes through his entire ministry. Check this out. This is amazing. He goes through his whole ministry. He comes to the end of his ministry, and now, in retrospect, he's looking back at all of his accomplishments, and he is realizing that coming all the way through his life, that a significant achievement had been made, that a victory had been gained, and that that victory was sealed and made complete with his death on Calvary. Knowing this, in retrospect, Jesus says to the disciples and through them to you and me, he says, okay, let me tell you what's going on now. Looking back on what's been accomplished, reaching its pinnacle at the cross, all authority has been given to me, comma. Go you, therefore, and what? Yes. Make disciples, teach, and baptize. What Jesus is describing is that his life and his death and his resurrection has created a situation in which the whole game has changed. So much so that in John's gospel, that was Matthew's gospel, so much so that Jesus, early in his ministry, this is in in the early parts of the gospel of John, Jesus prophesied, he says, okay, I'll tell you what's about to go down. Hereafter, once I accomplish what I'm here to accomplish, hereafter you will see, you will discern the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I'm going to achieve a victory so monumental that access, additional access, greater access, a more free-flowing access will be opened up between heaven and earth. You, as my followers, will now have the authority to leverage by your free will you will be able to leverage my victory against the powers of darkness. Now, Jesus and the apostles and all of Scripture is the story of this world, this domain, given into the charge of human beings. God created man in his own image, male and female, and gave them dominion over the earth. The heavens, even the whole heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. God is not a control freak. He's a delegator because God is love. God never, ever, ever operates in such a way as to cancel out our free will in favor of producing slaves or machines. God doesn't want slaves or machines. He wants fellowship with rational, sentient, volitional creatures who voluntarily say yes to him, not because they have to, but because they want to. God is operating on the principle of attraction. 
he is operating within the realm of wooing and drawing and convincing and influencing, not pushing, manipulating, and controlling. Why? Because God has a very high goal in mind. He wants your voluntary love. And because that's his goal, he operates within a very specific set of, shall we call them, rules of engagement within the great controversy. And Daniel chapter 10 is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture for opening our minds to the unseen spiritual realm or the field upon which the great controversy between good and evil is in fact transpiring nanosecond by nanosecond, whether we're aware of it or not. And sometimes we're more aware of it, sometimes we're less aware of it. It doesn't matter how aware of it we are, it's underway. Daniel chapter 10 is remarkable. You're going to have to sit up and take notice of this passage. Um, I'm inviting you to think with me this evening. Somebody said to me last night, that was a lot of material. That, that was a lot of material. So let me say this. I do not preach sermonettes because I am not a pastorette and I have no interest in producing Christianettes. <laughs> so we're going to study the Bible. Now, if some of this goes by too fast for you, because it is a lot of material, if there's ever been a series of messages, I, I think, I see cameras, this is probably being recorded, you should get the DVDs or the CDs, and you should, I'm, I'm challenging you. These four messages that we're taking in are so full of material, great controversy, richness, that I'm encouraging you to go over the material three, four, five, six times until you as a believer in Christ, master the language of great controversy, the protocols of the entire thing that's going down in this world, and begin to leverage your power as a blood-bought child of God by the sacrifice of Christ. Become conversant. Begin to know the great controversy, the language, the doctrine, the theme, the theology. Begin to know it like you know your phone number. Become familiar with the material. So you're going to have to dive in with me this evening. Daniel chapter 10 is amazing, and it's going to catch you by surprise. There are things here that are so astounding that you will be, you will be tempted to think, that can't be real. Is that, is that fiction? No, this is not fiction. Watch this. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, note we are in a domain. Note we are in a territory. Note we are in a nation. We are in Persia, and a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. So Daniel had received this, this vision, this dream, and he didn't know what it meant. So what did Daniel do? The message going on in verse 1 was true, but the appointed time was long, and he, that's Daniel, understood the message, and he understood Excuse me. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. But watch this. But in those days, I, Daniel, now Daniel's talking. The, 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 the prophet himself is addressing us. I, Daniel, was mourning for how long? Three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all. 
I didn't bathe. I didn't shower. I just hunkered down, and I began praying. Watch this. Till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So the first two verses tell us that Daniel was given a revelation and that he came to understand it. And the verses that follow are going to tell us how he came to understand what he previously did not understand. Well, he began to pray. He hunkered down. He began to pray, and he prayed for how long, everybody? Three full weeks. Well, why? Is it because God is hard to persuade? Is God a vending machine looking for the appropriate coinage? Are we dealing here with a God who is like the pagan deities that has to be appeased? Is God sitting back on his throne with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed? Pray a little longer, Daniel. Pray a little longer. I'm not convinced yet that I even want to have anything to do with you. Is the problem with God's character? Or is the problem on another level? Watch this. Down in verses 10 and 11, suddenly, Daniel's praying for three weeks, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. So picture the prophet there on his hands and knees, and he's trembling. A hand has now touched him. We know from the context that this is Gabriel by name, an angel. And he said to me, the one who touched Daniel, watch what the angel says. This is remarkable. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, Oh, Daniel, a man greatly, what? Beloved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have, notice the language, now been sent to you. Then he said to me, don't fear, Daniel. Don't be afraid. Calm down. Take a deep breath. Okay? It's not every day that you have this kind of encounter, but I'm here now to answer your prayer. For from the, note the language, first day that you set your heart to understand. From when, everybody? The first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard on day one. Your words were heard, and I have come. This is so powerful. I have come because of your words. I have come because of your words. But, but Daniel, let me explain to you why it took so long. I know you haven't been eating. You haven't been bathing. Um, you look horrible, Daniel. But, but listen, man. Calm down. Don't be afraid. I know it took a long time. But let me explain to you that even though from the first day you began to pray, because God loves you a lot, Daniel. You talk, God listens. Day one. But Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me for 21 days. Gabriel has been trying to get to Daniel to answer his prayer for 21 days. And he was withstood by some characters, some figure, that is here called the prince of Persia. A realm, a territory, a nation. Now, you're going to want to go back in your mind now to what we discovered last evening. In a message called Territorial Forces, we took on board what we referred to as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which is a very supernatural worldview. It is a cosmic geographic worldview. Cosmic in the sense that it takes in the entire populated universe— 
and geographic in that it takes in humanity. Deuteronomy 32 informed us that there was a point at which God divided up the nations and put guardian angels over them and that Satan moved in and appointed demonic forces or fallen angels over each of the nations. So think this through. According to the Deuteronomy 32 narrative, every nation is a territory under dispute. God has appointed an unfallen angelic guardian to pursue justice and righteousness and truth within the judicial systems, if you will, of that nation and the political structure, prompting, wooing, nudging, revealing, providentially guiding. And Satan has followed suit and appointed a fallen angel to fight with the unfallen angel over each nation to gain access to it and dominion. And we're about to discover that the vote that trumps who has control lies with the human agents. So here we have some character called the Prince of Persia, the ruler of Persia. This is obviously not a human being, because watch. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, Gabriel goes on to explain, came to help me. Help me in what? In my effort to break through to get to you. I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel. You're a human being. You've been praying. I was supposed to get to you from the first day, but I couldn't access you because a spiritual force was forbidding me access. Because, Daniel, you're an Israelite and therefore one of God's chosen people, but you are in a foreign land as a slave. And there is a dominating spiritual force presiding over Persia that was fighting against me and not allowing me access. Now, pan out for a minute, because when the Bible talks about this kind of fighting that's going on, when Gabriel says that the prince of Persia withstood me, do not imagine a physical battle in which the prince of Persia is standing in front of Daniel and Gabriel's like pounding on his body. It's a legal battle. It is a battle of words. It's a battle of logic. It's a battle of claim and counterclaim. And this will become more evident as we go on. On the first evening, we discovered that the word war, when Scripture says in Revelation chapter 12 that war broke out in heaven, you may remember the Greek word. When it says war broke out in heaven, it's the Greek word polemos, from which we get words like poles or politics. The war that broke out in heaven was a war of words and concepts and ideologies, propaganda, Representation versus misrepresentation. Satan was spinning lies regarding the character of God. Satan was trying to defame God's character and to pull the loyalty of the angels toward him through a reasoning process, not by throwing laser beams out of his fingertips. It's not so much a physical war on this level, it's a political war. So as Gabriel comes to the borders of this foreign land that is not Israel and tries to gain access to Daniel to answer his prayer, a spiritual force here called the Prince of Persia says, no, 
you're not going to have access to Daniel. He belongs to me. He's in my territory. This is my jurisdiction. You don't have access to him. Gabriel reasons back. But actually, he's an Israelite, and he's been taken into captivity. He belongs to Michael. He belongs to the prince of Israel. He belongs to Yahweh. Well, I don't care what you say. He may belong to Yahweh in some far gone, bygone age, way, way back, but he's here now, he's mine, and you're not talking to him. Something like that. And then watch this. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now it's plural. So we have a group of fallen angels, demonic beings, that are presiding over the country of Persia, and they are a group that are preventing Gabriel from having access. And Gabriel says, I was left alone there to deal with these fallen angels. But check this out. Michael came along. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days to come. So now he's about to explain to Daniel, I'm here now. I can answer your prayer. Um, Michael's over there having a conversation with this, this fallen angel, Persia, king, person, whoever that is. I'm Gabriel. I'm here to talk to you. Michael has that taken care of for now. So listen up, because watch. And now I must return. Well, Gabriel's kind of in a hurry. He doesn't have time for niceties. He's not like, Daniel, let's hang out for a few hours. He's like, okay, listen up. Here's what the prophecy means. And I gotta go. I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth from you, Daniel, and I have gone forth from dealing with the prince of Persia, indeed the prince of Greece will come. I'm going to have to enter into a spiritual battle with another fallen demonic force. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth, Daniel. No one, no one, upholds me against these. What's the context? Who are these? The prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. No one, no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. He's the only one of sufficient authority to break through this barricade that I've been dealing with for the last 21 days. Now you can look at this and say, man, that is just so bizarre. And I would say, yes, it is, and true. We live in a world in which the gist of the passage is telling us something like this. And you can insert, insert your name, your own life in this. The gist of the passage is telling us this. It's a worldview. It's a perspective. It's a description of what's going on in the world. You can believe that this is how the great controversy goes down, or you can push back and say, it's just too fantastical, I don't believe it. But here's the gist of the passage. Basically, what we have is, number one, Daniel is engaged in prayer for three weeks. Number two, finally, an angel appears to Daniel and explains what was going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm to cause the delay for the answer of his prayer. Number three, Daniel's told, well, Daniel, God loves you. So, Daniel, from the first day that you began to pray, I was sent to answer your prayer. But listen, Daniel, you need to understand, when you speak, God listens. I was sent because of your words. And I want you guys to hear that tonight. 
your words have the authority to move the God of the universe to set in motion factors and all kinds of things that would otherwise never happen. Number four, but, Gabriel explains, I couldn't get to you immediately because the prince of Persia blocked my access for 21 days. Finally, number five, Michael came to my help and we broke through. So here I am, Daniel, to finally answer your prayer. But I'm kind of in a hurry because now I need to go because I need to continue fighting with that fallen angel that is masquerading as a god over Persia. And when I finish with him, I'll have to engage in battle with the prince of Greece. Number seven, and Daniel, I want you to know that the only one of sufficient power to help me in this nonstop fight against these obstructing spiritual forces, the only one is Michael. And then Michael is identified specifically to Daniel an Israelite as your prince. You remember last evening we discovered in Deuteronomy 32 that all the nations were divided up and each one was given a guardian angel and a demonic force moved in to try to take control as well. But do you remember what we read? Yahweh said, but Israel is my heritage. I alone will preside over what's happening with Israel. I'm taking personal charge of Israel because I have a plan through this lineage to bring about the blessing and salvation of the world. When Gabriel identifies Michael as your prince, Daniel, he's identifying the fact that God himself is somehow embodied in this Michael figure. Now, Michael is disputed, but people like Spurgeon and uh, the old commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary, some modern scholars, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church in general believe that Michael is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. He's not an angel in the sense of a created being, but he is the one who presides over Israel's well-being and education leading up to his very own incarnation through that lineage. Now, we know that Michael is, in fact, God or the Son of God, Jesus Christ before his incarnation for a few reasons I don't have time to go into. I'll just share one with you. In both the book of Jude, which we'll look at in a minute, and in the book of Daniel, whoever this Michael figure is, he has the power to resurrect people from the dead. And that one factor alone tells us that this is no mere angel. No mere angel. So check this out. I'm suggesting to you so far in our time together tonight, I'm suggesting to you that prayer is an act of war on the battlefield of the great controversy between good and evil. If you want to really understand what prayer is, prayer is not a pagan exercise. It's not a human being trying to get God to be good. It's not a human being trying to persuade God to do things that God is otherwise unwilling to do. It is a human being giving God access to do what a good God has wanted to do all along 
but there's one line he won't cross. He won't violate the rules of engagement in the great controversy, which we will further unpack now. So come fast forward now to the New Testament. This is one of the most remarkable passages in the New Testament. Here we have this incredible lifting of the veil. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, take this in. And the Lord, and that's Jesus in this context, the Lord Jesus said, Simon, Simon, this is Peter, one of his apostles that he's addressing. Simon, Simon, indeed, check this out, you guys. Satan has asked for you. Satan is what? Asked Peter? Let me tell you something. Satan has made a petition to get you. He has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That's a poetic, symbolic way of saying to destroy your soul, to lead you astray. The devil has asked for you specifically, Peter, but look at this. <laughs> but I have prayed for you. I have what? Prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And notice the language. When, not if perchance, maybe, I sort of hope it happens. But there is an authority here. There's something definite. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. This is amazing. What we see here in this passage is a convergence of four wills. Did you pick up the four converging characters, the four wills? First of all, there's Peter. He's the human being in the story, right? Peter is the one who is, in fact, the object of satanic attack and petition. But the petition has to be made to someone. The passage says, Peter, Satan has asked for you. This harkens back to the book of Job, where Satan asked for who? Job. And there was a conversation, a legal conversation, that transpired in the heavenly, heavenly courts, in the heavenly congress. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. You remember last night, the night before? And the Lord said unto Satan, From where do you come? And Satan said, From walking to and fro and up and down in the earth. It's mine. I'm laying claim to it. I'm here in this heavenly assembly of sons of God, representative heads of other worlds. I'm here to represent planet earth. Adam and Eve gave it to me. It belongs to me. God responds and says, wait a minute, have you considered my servant Job? Well, now it gets interesting. You have the devil in this heavenly meeting asking for Job. We're going to return to this in just a moment, but right now we just need to realize that this is a biblical concept, that in fact, the devil has asked for Peter. But then there's the third person, you have Peter, then you have Satan, who's doing the asking. You have the Father as the one who's being asked, and then who? Jesus says, but Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you. All will be well, because prayer is powerful. Satan has asked for you, but I have petitioned and said, no. Peter's mine. 
He's messed up. He's dysfunctional. He's actually ridiculous a lot of the time, but he's mine. I really love him, and he's mine. So you have this conflict that's going on, don't you? Do you feel it? Do you see it? Four converging wills. The will of God the Father. The will of Peter is the deciding vote. But Peter is strengthened and surrounded by the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus is absolutely certain that you're going to blow it. You're going to abandon me. But when you return to me, because you are returning to me, when you return to me, strengthen my, your brothers. So here's another snapshot into this kind of conflict language in Scripture. On this occasion, in Jude 9, Michael, the archangel, that is the archangel being the head of all the angels, the pre-incarnate Christ, Yet Michael, the archangel, in, notice the language, contending with who? This is great controversy language. He's contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. Okay, there's a history here, obviously. There's a backdrop. There's a narrative. Disputing over the body of Moses. Moses is the subject of a dispute. Well, in what sense? Well, you remember the story, don't you? Moses was God's man, led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Moses finally, after a lot of patience and endurance, actually even interceding for them and saying, God, listen, if you can't forgive them, then blot my name out of the book of life. I'd rather be lost with them than to be saved without them. This is Moses. But then finally, toward the end of his prophetic career, Moses lost his temper, smote the rock, and went off on the children of Israel, as we say. And God said, in so many words, Moses, you've been my man all along. Um, You've endured a lot. Listen, Moses, you can see it right over there, the promised land, but I can't let you go in because that display of hot-headed anger has misrepresented my character sufficiently that the people will not be able to process that and continue navigating successfully. Moses, I'm sorry, but you cannot be the one that leads them into the promised land. Um, So God performs a kind of euthanasia right there on the mountain. He says, Moses, I'm going to kill you. So God performs a funeral there on the mountain. And this is amazing. He explained to him, there'll be another leader, and that will be Joshua. Joshua will lead them in, but Moses, you can't go in. Do you think Moses was bummed? Of course he was. His whole prophetic career had been, they were right there. They're on the border now. God, no, let me take, no, you can't take them in. Your moral failing has precluded you from being the one. So check this out. This is how good God is. God says, so Moses, Moses, lay down. I don't know how the Lord did it. I'm not going to conjecture, but he put him to sleep in the first death. Can you imagine Moses? Okay. He dies. And then Scripture says God resurrected him. It's like, Moses, I'm putting you down. Okay. Hello, Moses. (laughs) You couldn't lead the children of Israel into the promised land, but I like you. 
so I'm going to take you to heaven. Moses is like, what a deal. Those stiff neck, pain in the neck people. <laughs> I am content to watch from afar as Joshua leads them in. Can you imagine? So here's where Jude is picking up. Moses has been put down. He's at rest. First death, he is in the grave, right? Are you still with me in the story? And then Jesus, Michael, the pre-incarnate Christ, comes to resurrect Moses. We don't know exactly when. Was Moses in the grave for an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year? We don't know. But we know that he died, and then according to this passage, Jesus came to resurrect him. And who was there at the grave of Moses to argue or contend against his resurrection? Satan was, according to this passage. Satan said, you're not resurrecting him. I know what he did. Again, this isn't an arm wrestling match. This isn't that Satan challenges Michael to a duel. This isn't a physical battle. This is, no, you're not taking Moses. He's mine. Jesus, no, he's mine. The devil, no, he's mine. I know what he did. Lost his cool. He failed morally. He chose the principle of my kingdom. He's mine. And Jesus says something to the effect of, the Lord rebuke you. Step aside, I'm resurrecting him. And the context here, and this is so remarkable, is that Jesus is not excusing the sin of Moses. Jesus just knows something that Satan doesn't know. And that is that future to the resurrection of Moses, Jesus will be incarnate and will die for Moses, and his death on the cross will be retroactive for all the faithful of all ages. The devil doesn't understand what's about to go down, but Jesus is essentially saying, listen, I'm going to resurrect him. You can argue against it all you want, but he belongs to me by virtue of a victory that I'm about to gain over you sometime in the future here. You have no idea what's coming. I'm about to crush your miserable head under my heel. So I'm going to resurrect him right now, and you'll see why he has a perfect right to be here in the future. Something like that is going on. Okay, so here are the rules of engagement in the great controversy. You're going to love this. The rules of engagement are something like this from what we've discovered so far and the few pieces that we're about to fill in. Okay, the rules of engagement in the great controversy is something like this. Because God is love, which is the premise of all sound doctrine. Because God is love, God will not force or manipulate, but rather he operates within the parameters of truth and love. Truth and love. These are, the, these are the principles by which God operates. Are you tracking with me? Okay. But then there's Satan who employs deception and force. Yes, he does. He can externally apply pressures. He can dangle deception before you and me. He can bring external pressures to bear upon us. But watch this. Satan employs deception and force, but he has no jurisdiction over human conscience, and he has no access to any human domain beyond what is granted to him. You have no idea how powerful you are by virtue of the victory Jesus gained at Calvary. You have the authority 
to say no to Satan and all his miserable fallen imps. You have the authority to put around your life, your mind, your marriage, your children, your home. You have the authority to bring within the reach of all your domain the grace and the beauty of God's character, truth and love as the principles by which your marriage, your family, your home operates. And when heaven looks on and sees that marriage, that family, that home is operating by the principles of truth and love, well, then angels of God have greater access to protect, to guard, and to bar access to demonic forces. And to the degree that your marriage, your home, employs the principles of manipulation and force and deception, God is obligated by the rules of engagement to back up and to give access to the Lord that your actions are choosing over the Lord of light. So Satan employs deception and force, but there are lines he cannot cross according to the rules of engagement. So check this out. Number three, Satan's access to human beings is limited by two primary factors. Our permission, our permission, and God's permission. We see both of these factors in play in the book of Job. We see both of these factors in play in the book of Deuteronomy. We see both of these factors in play in the Luke passage where Satan asks for Peter. Jesus denies access and says, No, Peter is mine. Converging wills in the great controversy. Satan's access is... Satan's access is limited by two primary factors. So watch this. Number four. Here's the key point of the whole gospel and the whole Bible. The victory of Christ at Calvary over the forces of evil transferred all legitimate authority into his hands. Okay, listen very carefully. We live in a world of suffering and heartache and pain and starvation and oppression and greed and war. But listen, listen. Satan is, in principle, already defeated. In fact, Scripture says he knows that his time is short, so he is on a rampage to take as many people down with him as possible because he knows his gig is up. The moment Calvary happened, there was such a brilliant and beautiful revelation of God's love that Satan's kingdom was proven the dark, evil force that it is. The victory that Jesus gained at Calvary is a past tense victory, hence it is called good news. Not good advice. It's a historical event. Jesus, when he died at Calvary, effectively, in principle, won the great controversy. Jesus is the Lord of planet Earth and the human race. Now, the Gospel Commission is the process of reclamation. One child, one marriage, one man, one woman, one home at a time. Why do we do evangelism? To bring people back within the jurisdiction and realm of truth and love, which are the principles of God's kingdom. The victory that Jesus gained at Calvary over the forces of evil transferred all authority into his hands. He possesses it. So let's say it this way. Jesus is already, but not yet, 
the ruler of the world. He's already, in principle, won the victory. The not yet part is where you and I fit into the picture. That's where you and I have the privilege of being his proxy, his body in the world to take the kingdom viral so that as many people as possible can choose to put themselves within the jurisdiction of the beauty of God's character. Number five just blows my mind. This is where we live. By virtue of the victory Christ gained at Calvary, the church has been set up in the world as his fortress and the medium through which he exercises his authority. Listen, listen. The church of the living God is a powerful channel of truth and love to the world. It is not a once-a-week, one-to-two-hour event for spectators. Stop it. Stop it. We need, we need to get over this. If you are a member of the church of God, you are a you are an agent of change in the world. You are under orders from your king to get stuff done in the world. You have been given delegated authority on behalf of Jesus to lead men and women and children within, back into the parameters of truth and love. This is <clears throat> our calling. Number six, believers, <clears throat> let's get practical now, according to the Gospels, believers exercise their authority by two primary means. Number one, <laughs> by agreement, and number two, by prayer. This is where Jesus comes along and he says, listen, listen, if, if two or three of you get together and agree about something, I'm into it. If, if you guys see light in that, the God of the universe is saying, I, I, I'm with you. I'm going to marshal my authority and my power on your, if two or three, five, six, seven of you get together, thank you. If you guys get together and you agree on something, then I'm going to do what the church of the living God says on earth. And so Jesus is saying, Get together and pray. Why pray? Because God is hard and cold and distant and needs to be persuaded? No, because God is already there. <laughs> He's good. He, he wants so much for us. And he's saying, please, please, please ask me. Ask me. Ask me, please. I'm sure hoping you'll ask me because there's some awesome stuff I would like to do for you. Please invite me in. I would love to have a sandwich on your sofa. Please, let me in, the God of the universe is saying. Get together, groups of believers, and, and lay claim to territory in this fallen world through prayer. So I want to introduce you in closing to what I'm going to call the wall principle. The wall principle. What is the wall principle? This is so remarkable. Well, I told you we'd come back to Job. Satan notices something when he tries to get access to Job. What does he notice? He can't get access. Satan answered and said to the Lord, Yeah, of course. Does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a what, everybody? 
a hedge around him, around his household, his home, and around all that he has on every side, on every side. So check this out. The devil is trying to get access to Job and his family, but the devil sees something we don't see that Job doesn't see. There's an invisible hedge of some kind that is surrounding Job's life and family. Well, what is it? Check this out. Zechariah 2.5, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her that is a geographic location and a people, Israel in particular, and I will be the glory in her midst. God says there's a hedge around Job and there's a wall around Israel. What is this hedge? Is it made of mulberry bushes? What is this wall? Is it made of bricks? No, check this out. Psalm 34, 7 unravels the symbolism for us, the metaphor, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers him. Those who are within the parameters of the gospel of the kingdom of God are surrounded by angelic protectors. Elisha, at one time, in 2 Kings 6, prayed because there was a young man that was trembling at the approach of the enemy, and Elisha was all calm, cool, and collected, and the, the young man is like, you need to freak out. We're about, and he's like, nah, I don't feel like freaking out. This, guy, this kid is about to wet his drawers, and Elisha is essentially saying, you just don't really see what's going on. Hey, Lord, could you open his eyes? that he may see, so he can see what I see. I mean, I know what's going on here, but this kid, he needs to see this. Next verse. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. What did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha's like, there's not a problem here. There are more with me than with them. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God will throw up a standard against him. Check this out. The wall principle gives way to the access principle. Every human being, by default, is loved by God and under protective custody. We learned last evening in Matthew chapter 18 that every child, for example, has a guardian angel. So I want you to think of this. The gospel, the good news is that by default, by default, the default position is God loves you and you are under protective custody. But you have freedom to overturn that protective custody. So the wall principle gives way to the access principle. Check this out. Isaiah 30. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, notice, and trust in oppression and perversity. And you rely on them. What are the people relying on? Oppression and perversity. And because you're doing this, because you are operating by, by a moral code that is contrary to my character, 
Because you are relying on oppression and perversity, check this out. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in the high, a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly and an instant. What's the wall of protection that is around Israel in this particular passage? Isaiah is saying, listen, God is trying to protect you, but you keep making choices that bar God from having the level of access he wants to have. Your moral choices are definitive in this great controversy. Ezekiel 22 is a remarkable passage along the lines of this access principle. Here God addresses the people and he says, listen, your land is, is, is not cleansed morally. There's a whole lot of horrible stuff going on in your land. The princes of this land, the political rulers of the realm within are like, roaring, like a roaring lion tearing at the prey. They have devoured human lives. There are, there are political policies that are being put in place that are not in favor of the people. That's what's being said here. They have taken treasure and precious things. The leaders of the realm are enriching themselves. They're greedy, and they are taking bribes, and they are doing stuff on the sly. And they have made many widows within. So the land is morally fallen. So watch this. And I, that's the God of the universe, sought for anyone among them. Where all of this is taking place, this greed and bloodshed and political corruption, Yahweh says, I sought for anyone among them who would repair what? The wall and stand in the what? The breach before me on behalf of the land, the territory that is being overtaken by fallen human beings and fallen angels who are gaining access by the moral choices that are being made. And I, and I, I look for anybody that, that, that would repair the wall and stand in the breach before me on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it. And this is, this is I don't know if you could find, there are probably five lines this sad in Scripture. This is one of the saddest lines in Scripture, but I found no one. So the God of the universe saying, I want access, but nobody will grant it to me. I want in, but everybody's participating. Everyone's complicit in the corruption. Everybody's just going along with the system because they're benefiting from it or because they're afraid of repercussions. So I can't, I'm the God of the universe and I want access, but I can't find access because nobody is inviting me in. Nobody is inviting me in. What a picture, huh? It should tug at our hearts that the God of the universe is actually saying to us, I wish you would pray to me because I'm ready. I want to do something. I want in. Would you please ask me? Because according to the rules of engagement, I can't manipulate you and I can't force you. But man, oh man, I want access to your marriage, to your home, to your church, 
to your town, to your nation, to your world. So prayer is so remarkably real and powerful that the Bible actually portrays to us what can only be regarded as heaven's prayer processing center. Check this out. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, you have this incredible scene where immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there was a throne set in heaven and one sitting on the throne. This is God Almighty upon his throne. But then around the throne were how many thrones? 24, and on those thrones sat 24 elders. I don't have time to show you this, but these 24 elders are resurrected human beings that are now seated on thrones around the throne of God, participating in something. What are they participating in? And on the throne, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. That's one of the clues. That's why we know that they are human beings redeemed by the righteousness of Christ. And they had crowns on their heads, these 24 elders. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. There's a whole lot of activity going on. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Prepare yourself for this. We have God the Father on his throne. We have 24 elders encircling him. We have thunder and lightning and voices all taking place here. And now we have the Holy Spirit of God that is also present in this scene. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and on the back. Just picture this. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, the 24 elders, here it is, there was a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus in, is in the midst of all of it as the one who had given his life at Calvary. And his victory is so complete and so profound that there's all this activity, heavenly activity going on around the throne of God. There are thunders and lightnings and voices and Jesus has gained the victory and all of heaven is stirred up with what now, what now, what now? Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. And the 24 elders are there, the living creatures are there, and it says that Jesus, as a lamb that had been slain, has seven horns. That's biblical symbolism for perfect authority by virtue of his victory at the cross, and seven eyes, perfect discernment of everything transpiring in the world, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the words world. Check this out. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb like we often ought to do. And each having a harp, so the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they're musical beings. They love to sing. But check this out. This is amazing. So the four living creatures are there. The 24 elders are there. The 24 elders have harps and they have golden bowls full of incense, and we're told, which are the prayers of the saints. The 24 elders have a job, an assignment. They are, I don't know, prayer auditors. They assess every prayer that is prayed, and all of the, 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 the heavenly hosts are actively awaiting 
the command of God to go forth and to answer our prayers. The 24 elders are like, okay, right over here, Debbie is praying that her daughter will somehow lose infatuation with that boy who is leading her astray. And one of the 24 elders says, you know what? Debbie has been praying, and God really wants this prayer answered. You, an angel is pointed to, go and intervene on behalf of Debbie's daughter. Golden bowls full of the prayers of the saints. <laughs> these are prayer processors, these guys. Listen, here's the bottom line. God does all the good that he can to the maximum degree that he can in every situation he can while preserving our freedom. And prayer is the mechanism in the great controversy by which we leverage our authority as believers in Christ on the premise of the victory that he gained at Calvary. I think we ought to pray. I think we ought to pray. Bottom line is basically this. If you ever find me sitting on your sofa eating a sandwich, don't be alarmed. I'm only there if somebody invited me. Your husband's probably going to be emerging in just a moment to tell you it's okay. And if you ever see your son, your daughter, your mom, your dad, your best friend from high school, your neighbor, if you ever see them come to the Lord and open their heart to him, it's because somebody had prayed for them. Father in heaven, you're incredible. You're amazing beyond our estimation. You've set in motion all of this sophisticated network of heavenly agencies who are on the edge of their seats just waiting to receive access to our lives. Father, I want to ask you to intervene on my behalf for my children, Amber, Jason, and Leah, for my wife, Sue. By the authority that you have granted me, Lord, I give you full access to my family. Father, I'm inviting all of my friends here this evening to right now bring up in their minds some person that they want to bring before you right now. A son, a daughter, a friend, somebody you know who is struggling, somebody who is in need of divine intervention. Bring that person up in your mind right now. Hold them before Jesus. And Father, as right now we collectively hold those we love before you, we give you access. Father, we open the door to you. We invite you in. Here we are, your sons and daughters, and we agree with one another 
that these individuals that we are right now thinking of, Father, we all agree that they should have a free zone around them without demonic encroachments to think and to process what's going on in their lives and to feel their need of you. Please remove all demonic access so that they can have the freedom to think clearly. To think, Lord, and to process your claims. We hold them before you right now, believing that you will do things because of our words that otherwise you would not be able to do. In Jesus' name, amen.